0: Welcome to the latest episode of Public Power Now. I'm Paul Shampoli, APPA's news director. Our guests on this episode are Amy Storma, a financial analyst with Wisconsin Public Power Utility, Calcana Utilities, and Laura Beeman, a managing consultant with Beam Reach Consulting Group. Beam Reach Consulting Group has developed several successful community benefits plans and offers focused services in this area. Laura leads community benefits plan services at the consulting group. The Department of Energy requires community benefits plans as part of Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and Inflation Reduction Act Funding Opportunity Announcements and Loan Applications. Amy and Laura are joining us today on the podcast to provide insights on community benefits plans, including elements of a successful community benefits plan. Amy and Laura, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us, Paul. And sure thing. Um, so just to get the, the conversation started, I wanted to know if you could talk about And Amy, I'd start with you. What what are the key elements of a successful community benefits plan um, when seeking DOE funding? And how can communities, in your view, ensure their plans align with DOE objectives?
1: Sure. Key elements really are um, take credit for some of the things that you're doing already. We're a publicly held municipal utility. So we have already, you know, a little bit of an advantage. We are working with our customers continuously continuously. To our commission and things like that, but there a community benefit agreement plan. Really, you don't need to have it executed. You just need to have a plan uh, when applying for the grants. And one of the things that that I've noticed is they ask for letters of support here, and that really goes hand in hand with the community benefits plan because it is, it shows DOE that you're already reaching out. To community members and you've already shared what your plans are and what you're hoping to do. Also looking at ensuring for focus on the workforce, looking at internships, apprenticeships. We do CESA 6 and STEM training with our local community college and high schools. Um, We have put in our um, successful grant applications to upskill our current workers, and how we already provide competitive wages and benefits. So then there's the diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility that you need to um, show how you're going to continue committing to. And there really, uh, we're being cost competitive, doing a lot of outreach. We do have a disadvantaged community, and we do have a tribal government within our service area. So we have worked with them. We're also planning to do some outreach when we do bids and other work on the project with women and minority-owned businesses and maintain the diversity in our project team. So all those components are really part of what DOE is looking for and to make sure that we um, understand what is expected and what their goals are and how we're going to help them meet them.
0: Okay, great. Laura?
1: Sure. Um, I'd like to build upon what Amy said. So
2: um, she mentioned some of those elements or focus areas of the CDP and uh, DOE has designed it with four key elements. So the first of those is community and labor engagement. Second is investing in America's workforce. Three is advancing diversity, equity, uh, inclusion and accessibility. They've added the A recently. And then also the last is furthering justice for the initiatives. So In general, that's just assuring that for your project or anything that receives uh, federal funding, that 40% of those overall benefits of the project uh, flow directly to those disadvantaged communities or DACs, as we call them. So really what DOE is looking for is that they want a CBP that addresses all four of those key elements and really is comprehensive to look at among those four categories, what are the things that your project's going to have a direct impact on um, that you can claim or, or build upon? And then maybe in the areas where the project won't have as much of a direct impact, you look at those as areas to focus CBP activities so that um, a really successful proposal would uh, would thoroughly kind of address all four of those key element areas. Kind of my overall advice when we work with, with different applicants is that You want to think of the CBP as an asset to both your funding application, but also just to the completion of your project itself. So it's a chance to kind of show the positive impacts of what your project will do just from being constructed as far as the impacts to those communities, especially the DACs and for the environment as a whole. um, But also you can develop those CBP activities for kind of the gaps where you think, uh, your project isn't as directly focusing on those J40 goals and the different elements. Um, so that you can find kind of mutually beneficial points where you can build out parts of your project and build these four key areas of the CBP in ways that will directly support your project. And even better for DOE is to show that they can directly support the advancement of the energy transition and uh, improving DACs. So if you can kind of comprehensively look at those four categories and uh, design your project and your CBP plans around those to address all of them, you'll have a really strong CBP. Um, And really just think of it as uh, kind of a-, a benefit. And I guess the one other piece of advice I'd say is that um, every CBP DOE's kind of intentionally kept it a little bit vague or a little bit open uh, to be flexible in creating CVPs because every single project, uh, every location is going to have its own unique qualities and assets and community needs. Um, and you can really use that as an advantage to sell your project and and to build it around the, your unique story.
0: So Laura, um, the next question I had is specifically for you, given your role at uh, being reached Consulting Group. And, and the question I had for you is if you could share examples of projects that have effectively implemented um, community benefits plans and showcasing the positive impact on the local population and environment.
2: We've worked on a really wide variety um, from smaller projects to larger projects. And typically, uh, the larger the project, the longer the construction and the more money that you're asking for. Uh, the more complex you need to be with your CBP and, and how far-reaching it is. Um, so one of probably the most complex one uh, that our group has ever worked on is uh, it was a large project in, that included three states where construction was occurring in New England, but also had an overall impact on the resilience of the grid for the, all of New England. So this was a huge project, one of the biggest awards uh, of any uh, proposal I've ever been involved in. Uh, and this one was a winning. This was a winner in GRIP round one. Many of the DACs uh, in this project area, because it was a large area, we had that advantage that we didn't have an area where it was hard to find disadvantaged communities or characteristics of disadvantage that we could improve upon. Um, so it made it easy that there were a lot of DACs. Because this was a 20-year, over 20-year construction period for this project, One of the biggest concerns that was identified early was that uh, workforce availability was going to be an issue uh, in the construction of the project that could potentially slow down the the timeline, especially they needed uh, certain specialized skills for, uh, say, for pooling cables, for underground power lines and specific things to this project itself. That was also in a region where there are some of the highest energy burdens and the highest percentiles in the country um, for homes that aren't connected to grid heating sources. So the old housing stock, uh, the need for weatherization, and the need to kind of educate the community on a lot of these things that were new, uh, renewables were new to a lot of the communities here, Um, not as far as just being aware of them, but having access to them or actually being able to buy into those for your power. So these were some of the things that early on were identified as um, challenge points or areas that could really be focused on for improvements in the CBP activities. So this was a really covering so much area. It was a large utility. And then there were four different outreach groups situated in different states, some that were more um, related to policy Some work closer with state agencies. There were others that were more community-based outreach groups. So we really kind of hit all those different points and utilized all those connections. There were over 100 partners in the CBP plan. So it's the largest one I've ever worked on. We had over 100 letters of support from all those partners, some of which were actual commitment letters or establishing programs pending receipt of the funding. But what they did was to really look at every step of the project and where would we need to fill in gaps to kind of support it. So being that workforce and energy conservation and weatherization, energy burden were kind of the biggest uh, issues in this region. They really started from an early age and built a whole comprehensive mechanism to support the project with its CBP activities Uh, to ensure that its construction could be completed on time and be successful. And I think that's a huge part of what helped with the win on this project because they really did a good job of showing that they had thought of every step of the way where we would need to support the project and and looking 30 years ahead to do that. So some of the things that they did were um, starting at a middle school age with programs in middle school and high school, to do uh, just to kind of grow interest in careers and utilities and the energy transition, and then to have some job shadowing and service day opportunities. Uh, Then they also developed a a scholarship program that was for low to moderate income household students of any ages. And this was uh, scholarships that supported specific types of career studies. Um, Things that would support not only the project, but the energy transition as a whole. They also created uh, specific curricula with some of those local community colleges. So all this was not only hitting on benefits to the project, but also J-40 initiatives as well. So uh, really just fulfilling all those things that DOE wants to see. Uh, They also continued with developing partnerships with workforce training centers where there were micro-credentialing courses developed and specialized skills to support the energy transition. Uh, And then they followed through with those students and participants in all the programs and offered job placements within the company where they could. Some some of the programs had guaranteed interviews. Others had the goal, depending on if it was workforce training or who the partners were. Uh, Others had the goals of placing people at partner organizations Uh, within the unions to complete the specific work for the project that they were trained for and, um, just general activities in the utilities sector where we could, uh, grow the careers in those areas. They also developed agreements wherever they could. Uh, sometimes you're doing this project, you know, we're three years ahead of construction when we're creating this proposal. So it's kind of difficult. A challenge is working with the unions and labor groups to establish agreements that are not only pending, receipt of funding but years in advance of the actual work beginning so they did a great job on that project of obtaining union support um, not only the local ones but going to the national level since the local ones weren't all you know nailed down yet but they could get an overall national letter of support from international brotherhood of electrical workers and then we also got the support of the regional iso which is a a big uh selling point for doe um are Stressing that even more in Grip Round 2 is something that will really sell your project or help to improve its competitiveness. And then um, another factor was that um, to help assist with those J40 priorities, we also worked with regional diverse supplier organizations to kind of ensure that we used a diverse set of vendors and contractors and suppliers from all backgrounds for the project. And then they also develop community programs such as weatherization programs, assisting households to buy into community solar and those sort of things uh, with a guaranteed reduction in their electric bills over a 10-year period. And then community and engagement and education programs um, about the benefits of renewables and the energy transition and the project itself. So this was a huge undertaking where they kind of addressed all those things, brought all different kinds of community groups in three core states, uh, but all of New England together to create this really complex CDP. And the biggest accomplishment of all was really the fact that this was a project that had previously applied for federal funding about five years earlier. And uh, one of the key issues that was identified was impacts to the community, such as shed impacts from overhead lines, uh, environmental exposure, those sort of things that were the biggest community concerns. And in their second application, once the GRIP running was released, they addressed every one of these concerns and actually uh, made changes to the project, to underground lines and to design things in a way that also met all of the, the asks of those communities as well to have very little impact. So they really did a good job of addressing any issues that, that you could find.
0: That's a, that's a great, really comprehensive overview. Uh, I think it will be very helpful to our listeners. So, Amy, I wanted to start with you on the next question, which is how would you say the DOE evaluates and prioritizes community benefits plans in terms of grant proposals? And what advice can you offer to communities to enhance uh, the competitiveness of their proposals?
1: As far as the um, DOE evaluation prioritization, they really do put a strong prioritization on this. As Laura was describing, the intricacies of all of the making sure each stage of the project at each component part of the community benefit plan is addressed, they really do look at it that way. As with our successful grant award, we did have to go through that same thing. So, And now that were working with DOE directly, they are, we have a special an individual who is working with us just on CVP, and then the grant constructionist is separate. So they are focusing strongly on that and prioritizing that and making sure that it is as interwoven as Laura described. But they do, they are pretty transparent on what they're looking for in the materials that we used when we filled out the grant. They were clear on what they were looking for. They had they now have a webinar and a template to use for this that we didn't have or for the grant that we were awarded. But they really have they really are focusing, really are prioritizing. And then as they go through, they're really making sure that you did hit all the areas. And as Laura mentioned also, if you don't have a robust program now, what is your plan to do something in that area to to engage. And that doesn't have to be fully fleshed out, but you do have to have a plan and goals around that. It is a strong component of it, just as strong as the technical component. So I would always advise to, you know, make sure they spend as much time on that as they do on the other
0: parts of it. Thanks, Amy. Uh oh, Laura, did you have anything that?
2: Um, I'd like to add that that was a a great synopsis, especially from someone who's actually gone through the application process firsthand. Kind of just some overall insights are just, you know, always making sure that you address all four of those key elements and effectively communicate how your CBP and your project itself will support the completion of the project and the successful inner use of that funding, but also how it will benefit those local disadvantaged communities and the environment and um the energy transition in general. So it's really just important to think of the CBP as an asset to your proposal, that if you put in that initial legwork and that effort into developing it, it can really round out your project and help it shine and kind of tell the unique story of your, your service area and your project. And overall, as far as the DOE guidelines, the CBP, it's worth 20% of the total scoring of these proposals. So that's a big deal because in the past, um, I've been writing grants and proposals for about 25 years. And in the past, these, these topics have always been present in applications, but they weren't as big of a component that you could use as an advantage in your application. Um, and not only to the, to getting the award, but in ensuring the success of your project later, if you design it right and really do that brainstorming at the outset. So I just wanted to run through really quick what those, eight J40 policy priorities are that are that are the goals to to improve upon or advance. And those are things like decreasing energy burden for DACs, decreasing environmental exposures and burdens in DACs, um, increasing the parity of clean energy technology access and adoption for all, increasing access to low-cost capital in DACs to work in, in clean energy areas. And also increasing clean energy enterprise creation and contracting. Then also increasing just the jobs themselves, you know, creating quality, high-paying jobs uh, and kind of developing a job pipeline and a whole mechanism to make sure that you have people with the skills, training people where needed um, to support your project and the energy transition as a whole. And finally, to increase energy resilience, especially for those disadvantaged communities that are often... Um, the hardest hit and and it's less likely to have backup sources, generators, things like that, and then the the goal that's always the hardest in all these proposals to to hit is uh, increasing energy democracy, uh, because we have worked on some projects where there were community solar or wind projects, that sort of thing, but in most of them, uh, the case to be made is often just that. By really engaging the community in that project's design and changes to it and keeping up a continuous conversation throughout the life of the project to make sure that you're still on track with meeting the community's needs and reducing mitigating impacts to them wherever you can, um, that's the most important part to try to help them kind of feel like they can buy in on the project and that they're part of its success and ownership as well so those are some of the ways that we show those you know develop those goals typically um to be more competitive though developing the CbP just kind of as a vehicle to support both the needs of the project and the communities and overall energy transition is very important and one of the the first things that I uh, kind of insist upon is that there's eight policy priorities that's a lot to talk about and they're very specific but I think that the cbps that directly address those eight j40 policy priorities and say, hey, for each one of these, this is how our project or our related CBP activities is going to improve upon that and have a a great impact on the community and in in, uh, supporting the energy transition. If you do that and really cover all of them, and most projects still have one, you know, especially that energy democracy one where there's one that's more difficult to address or to have a big impact on. But um, you know, just to be honest and say where you will have the impact, where there are challenges, that sort of thing. But to show that you've really done their job of brainstorming and planning this out to support your project long term, that's really where uh, where I think DOE is looking for those sort of things to all be uh, comprehensively covered.
0: Now, Laura, you you mentioned, among other things in that, in that response, engaging the community, which is kind of a nice segue to to my next question for both you and Amy is, and that's specifically what role the, does a community engage, does community engagement and collaboration play uh, in terms of the development and execution of effective community benefits plans for energy projects? Uh, Amy, did you want to respond first to that question?
1: As we've been talking, community engagement, a collaboration with different groups and different businesses, depending on your size and whatever, we're a smaller community. We have all of our large businesses work with us. Our project is a grid resilience project and uh, micro grid and battery storage. So it's really um, adding resiliency to the grid, which is, you know, strong need as we get adding more demand. So engaging all those groups, we've engaged with the tribal government. Our DAC is actually in our downtown area, right by our corporate office. And we've um in the area where we're doing this project, creating a microgrid. The disadvantaged community area and the all the emergency response air agencies are all in that area. So that's how this microgrid really became important because it's not only serving resiliency during good times, because it will watch the grid for any anomalies. It also, when there's an outage or bad weather, other things, it will monitor and adjust and reduce the number of people that are actually hit with this. And then it will also start up faster and the battery backup makes a difference. And the battery can also end up being a black star. We are uh, hydroelectric, so we're already green, but the grid resiliency is also an issue. So Everybody here has a has a stake in that, right? Because even minor blicks can harm production flows. So it's really important to get business, community leaders, your chamber of commerce, because you can also get people looking at, you know, people that are coming in, businesses that are coming in that can help your community grow and make sure you can help everyone do better faster. So that's that's been Our uh, experience with this, we engaged everyone early, as Laura had talked about, because this did have a big impact. So what would happen if our hydroelectric irrigates, obviously if we have a lot of water, there's an opportunity for flooding. So what would we do? How would we help everybody be able to recover from that? So all those conversations were instrumental in us putting this all together and making sure that the community was involved, felt heard, and now they will be part of it on the back end as well.
0: Thanks, Amy. Uh, Lords, do you have any uh, additional comments?
2: Sure, yeah, I'd really just like to build upon Amy's great comments. Um, the fact that you just need to start as early as you can and engage as many community organizations and mis- municipalities and counties and local government and different groups as you can as early as possible. And I guess one difference is that uh, sometimes in these types of projects, when you have public listening or input sessions, it's more so presenting, hey, this is what we plan to do. Um, Are there any major comments or, or observations, objections, et cetera? But in these projects, you really want to look at it in a little bit different way that when you're talking to the different groups and the community partners that You think of them as true partners in the CBP or participants. The idea that everyone's going to benefit from this. We've got these mutual, we can not only more inform you about the project and learn if you have any objections, but we want to actually listen to you and develop some of our CBP activities around your needs and your concerns because this is beneficial for everyone if we work together. Um, so that's one way that in a lot of the bigger projects, we've been able to get eye in from the different partners in the CBP, because you find you really listen to them and identify uh, those points of, of areas where you have the mutual benefit. And Amy pointed out something, too. There's so many different groups and it's unique to every project um, who you can engage in these. But she mentioned one important one that's forgotten often, and I think that's res- first responders. That's been something that many of the, the groups that we've worked with didn't think of that or didn't recognize it. And, um, you know, you learn a little bit from every one of these that you work on for different clients that one had a really robust first responders training for a battery storage project and kind of training them on the new technology and the new potential things that they might get called out or just need to be aware of anything that's different from their typical types of responses. And it really that's really even a low-cost CVP activity that you can develop and get a lot of uh, community engagement there. Also, things like uh, the local governments, business and industry, sometimes you might not think about how businesses could be impacted from your project or especially benefit. Um, clearly, more resilient and more reliable power is going to benefit the community and all the business and industry in that area. Working with educational institutions, community-based organizations. So you really have to just look at the unique aspects of your project, the region, and the needs of your community. Do as good of a job as you can to understand those and to find those points of of connection where you can work together. So another thing, though, that that we haven't talked about is just um, early on identifying what are the disadvantaged communities in your project area. So the best source for doing that is EPA's EJ Screen Tool. Uh, what's different about that? There are several different tools to identify DACs online, but this one, uh, the EPA gives an actual ranking of the different percentiles of for each of those census tracts what their characteristics of disadvantage are, and that's a good starting point for engaging with the communities as well, um, because you can look at those areas and say, okay, so their issues are transportation related, very high energy burden, uh, unemployment. You can look through and see what their biggest issues are in that area that could use improvement, and kind of use those as some some basis uh, points, some base points for conversation with those groups. You want to obtain, as Amy said, as many letters of support as you can, and letters of commitment if you have actual partnerships in place. And DOE does really stress that the more community benefits agreements that you can actually have executed to submit with your proposal the better you are. This was something that was a challenge in the past um, because like Amy said, you're doing this ahead of time and you're, you're just trying to stay as ahead on it as you can, that it can be difficult sometime to establish those agreements. But we, we have worked some ways to kind of work around that to, to do pending agreements, pending funding, uh, that sort of thing. But you really just want to kind of reach out and really listen to the communities and the different partners And you have that advantage of the fact that there are those mutually beneficial goals. And it's really just kind of a unique time to use that. And because right now we have a lot of federal funding out there uh, that's not only available for the infrastructure projects, but with the caveat that a portion of that funding is intended to flow directly to those communities, especially the disadvantaged communities. So... You can actually look at it as uh, as part of your project, part of the selling point to take some of that that pending funding that to say that if you receive it, that you're going to create these programs and do you know as much as you can with it and show that you have a really good engagement and understanding of your community and and what they would want to see.
0: So my final question gets to specific challenges or common pitfalls that communities should be aware of uh, in terms of creating and implementing community benefits plans for DOE-funded projects. And Amy, I would like to start with you in terms of uh, addressing that question.
1: I think uh, what we've seen is not being thorough enough in thinking about, and I think Laura just mentioned this too, thinking about all the people that are impacted or could be impacted. And even if you think they might like not be and there's a big group out there, check with them because if you, if you miss an opportunity to work with a group, you may miss an opportunity to add something to the community through this construction project. We did that when, when we were looking at this, uh, we had thought of all different kinds of projects and then it came down to looking at emergency management, the disadvantaged community area and you know, things like that to, to really learn about this microgrid and black start and all these things to make sure that we have the resiliency. So it, it was interesting in engaging different people in different groups that it really led us from one project to another. So yes, the early you, you start and you don't want to put a, put the community benefits plan on the back burner because it could inform and help guide as much as it can be just part of the application so it's it's really interesting to go through this process and really need to work with everybody and and see that the groups work together and learn from and you know build this thing and and then we're we're actually getting the grant and now taking it you know back to them and saying you know you helped us get something and now we can all put it to use together and it's going to help everybody so DOE is really looking for something that's complete. They want to be able to judge just from what you've said, that you can do it, that it's already, you know, the old, you know, adage of shovel ready. But if they really are looking to make sure that you just haven't glossed over this, that you are committed to this and you have committed the research to it and put some boots on the ground and make sure that you understand what we're doing and where you're going with it. So. That's that's the hardest thing when you're also doing every other day's work and issues that come up and all that kind of stuff. But you want to do the project, you really need to to stay focused and and keep the resources on it as well.
0: Well, thanks, Amy. Laura, did you have anything you'd like to add on this?
1: Yeah, I think Amy did a great job of
2: talking about the overall concerns, and I think I'd just like to add a few specific challenges or pitfalls that I've kind of encountered or seen other. Clients, uh, checkle. So, um, one of the biggest hang ups, I think, is just not being sure how to handle the whole J40 uh, policy priorities. And, you know, the, the issue is that, uh, to ensure environmental justice, DOE or in all these federal infrastructure programs, they want to ensure that about 40% or more of the overall benefit of the project and all the related activities are directed at those disadvantaged communities. So sometimes it's a hang up that applicants will look at that and say, well, we're not giving 40% of the funds or this one focus point or this program. It's not 40% of, of, uh, you know, there won't be metrics to support that 40% of the effort went to that or the improvement. And you really want to be a little more, uh, look at the project as a whole and those overall benefits. Every of the, one of those four element areas or key elements of the CBP don't have to receive equal weight in that. It's all unique to your project. So you just need to think of it as an overall impact that you'll have. Uh, another one is just, um, you know, people just being, there's been a lot of, um, I guess, people who have hesitancy or, or the CBP was the thing that they were really concerned about in their proposals this past year, um, because it was a newer concept, even though these topics had been addressed in proposals and grant apps in the past. It is a its own standalone document and effort now. So it's a big deal. It's twenty percent of your overall score, and it's, you know, it's can really be something that can make or break your proposal. So another issue I've seen is um, some projects where they really had a lack of DACs. Uh, they might have either had a small study area or service area or just have an area where there were some DACs, but not a lot. And in those cases, for example, a good one will be for the areas where Amy and I are both located. If you're in a rural area, oftentimes rural areas uh, don't qualify, don't have quite enough threshold uh, passing characteristics of disadvantage to fully qualify as a DAC, but you can then look at that tool that tells you what their characteristics of disadvantage are that are most prevalent and kind of build upon those to make a case for that area being important in a, in improving justice, sporty initiatives overall. Uh, we've also seen, uh, we kind of touched upon this too, um, the fact that we really wants to see many CBAs or community benefits agreements established, uh, fully executed with your proposal where you can. And that can be an issue. A lot of clients have been worried about that because it's difficult to establish an education program or something that's in its early development. So how we've handled that is to often recommend that the applicants develop CBAs that are pending the receipt of funding, that sort of thing, and to thoroughly explain and plan out what they plan to do. But it's all just, you know, they're not on the hook if they don't receive the funding. That brings me to another point about lack of funding uh, just in general. And some clients weren't aware that you can actually can you can actually designate a portion of the award uh, if you receive funding to completing those CBP activities uh, and in this past year we we worked on projects that being reached that uh, typically range from about two percent to 10 percent of the total award um, being dedicated just to the CBP activities so it really varies depending on the nature of your particular project but knew that, because it's so important, there's federal funding streams. It's expected that part of them will be dedicated to these community activities. Um, And then another thing, there's been a lot of questions about specifically with those CBAs and agreements, you know, how do you work with get labor agreements? How do you work with the unions and, and other organizations? And in some cases where um, it was too soon to establish a local collective bargaining agreement or agreement for a union, a specific local union to provide the labor for a project, we we would go to the national level. So we'd get a, a general level of support, not only from those local unions saying that it was the goal to utilize them wherever possible or to the extent possible, and then to get a national level letter of support from that level, just to say that. It will support uh, not only employing some of those union members, but even training them and enhancing their skills in uh, utilities type of activities. Uh, and then a final thing that I think is really specific to public power is that I think public power really has a unique advantage in these proposals because the CVP has become so important now, um, and is is twenty percent of the score because. I think in in working with public power in some instances, it's first thought of, well, you know, how are we going to create this whole CBP and all these new activities when everything that we do is serving the public? You know, public power is 100 percent public and community focused. So rather than thinking of that as a challenge and we have to create all these new programs and new initiatives, kind of start, like Amy said, with the things that you have with your existing relationships and programs and initiatives And expand them or build upon them, uh, bring in more partners to be involved with them and really just use that as an asset. I think public power really has a unique advantage to utilize those already existing community connections and being in the community and knowing it better than, say, an investor-owned utility. So um, I really think that public power should look at that as a big advantage, their connections with the community and use that.
0: Well Amy and and Laura thanks so much for taking the time out of your day um to participate uh in the podcast it's it's obviously fair to say that there's been a lot of uh, useful information and advice related to CBPs uh from this conversation so thanks so much for taking the time
1: Sure thank you for me. Having-
0: Public power utilities interested in learning more about the topics discussed in this episode are encouraged to join APPA's Energy Transition Community, a working group that is addressing grid operations, reliability, resiliency, and recovery in our future low-emission electricity delivery system, including advising APPA's work on its DOE cooperative agreements. To volunteer to participate in the ETC, send an email to energytransition at publicpower.org. Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Power Now, which is produced by Julio Guerrero, graphic and digital designer at APPA. I'm Paul Schimpoli and we'll be back next week with more from the world of public power.